0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. With the threat of armed protests before the inauguration, a top federal law enforcement officer here says the government is working at unprecedented levels to keep the peace. All the while, he says, We're not interested in
1: investigating or prosecuting legitimate political speech.
0: Then, it's not just the domestic picture in the U.S. that's volatile right now. Relations between the U.S. and Iran are as shaky as they've been in a while. Professor Nader Hashemi of the Center for Middle East Studies at DU will explain why, just as there is a change of administrations here. And later, the effect of the siege in Washington on some people of color.
2: Black justice workers are not okay. We are angry, we are infuriated
0: how this event might spur change. During a time when so many of us have been physically distanced from friends, neighbors, and colleagues, your generous support has helped Colorado Public Radio bridge the gaps, bringing our community together through the stories that connect us all. Voluntary support is the lifeblood of the content and coverage we all rely on. Thank you for being our partner in making this kind of radio happen for the Colorado community each and every day. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The FBI warned this week of plans for armed protests in all 50 states beginning Saturday and through the inauguration. Law enforcement here in Colorado is working with federal authorities to try to keep things under control. CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry joins us. Hi, Allison.
3: Hi, Ryan. So
0: you spoke with U.S. Attorney Jason Dunn, who represents the District of Colorado, a top federal law enforcement. Enforcement official here what does he say about coordination among officers
3: well you know the goal is of course to keep everyone safe while allowing people to protest legally if that's what they're planning to do and that includes armed people but you know at this point after what happened last week it's pretty much of an all-out effort between federal state and local authorities to keep the peace everywhere
1: well I think foremost we prepare for the worst and hope for the best the FBI has done an outstanding job of being prepared and coordinating um, along with our office with both the Colorado State Patrol and Denver Police Department to ensure that we have open lines of communication uh, between now and through the inauguration on the 20th. So that should there be actionable intelligence either leading up to any event or specific acts, um criminal acts around the Capitol or around federal property. Uh, We can work as a, a collective team of federal and state law enforcement to ensure that people in the facilities are fully protected.
3: Dunn and the state's FBI special agent in charge say they're already monitoring movements and plans by Coloradans who may want to cause bodily harm or property destruction ahead of the event in Washington, D.C. This also includes monitoring who may be traveling to D.C. as well. And uh, closer to home, they have stood up an emergency operations center to keep an eye on any activity in downtown Denver. Ah,
0: okay. In mm-hmm. Colorado. And the event being the inauguration. Correct. What about how extremist groups are communicating, especially as some Social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook crack down.
3: Yeah, you know they're they're pretty vague about their intelligence. You know, behavior, what they what they look at and what they use for intelligence. But they have various sources to to get information about what individuals or groups may be planning in the days ahead. Um, and he always points out that political speech and protests are protected by the First Amendment.
1: We're not interested in investigating or prosecuting legitimate political speech. Um, we are, of course, interested in. Understanding whether individuals or groups intend to commit state and federal crimes and then making sure that we can either stop those crimes in advance or if we're not able to do that, um, then investigating and prosecuting those individuals if they do violate the law.
3: You know, ahead of the election, I talked to Dunn and the FBI about this very same thing, groups of people trying to sow chaos. And he said the same thing, you know, that it's not illegal to belong to any group or protest. But if you're trying to hurt someone or destroy property, that's what they're watching for.
0: Allison, the FBI's warning says, quote, armed protests. Are yeah. planned at all 50 state capitals, which of course includes Denver. Mm-hmm. But have any specific targets like the Capitol building itself here been directly threatened that we know of?
3: No, you know, that's a that was a very vague FBI bulletin that went out nationally earlier this week. And you know, Dunn said that he doesn't have any specific information about threats to cause harm to people or buildings or property in Colorado but they're still gathering intelligence. He says they're being very diligent, trying to gather as much information as they can to take action if they determine something is a legitimate threat.
1: There's a difference between asking, are there legitimate threats to cause harm uh, to people or property versus saying um, there's intelligence that shows that individuals will be gathering to protest around the inauguration. And so um, certainly when you have individuals who are armed Uh, gathering to protest. That's something that law enforcement wants to watch and make sure that it occurs safely and that um, they're exercising their First and Second Amendment rights um, in accordance with the law. But that's very different than saying, you know, is there intelligence information about actual threats to do harm?
0: What did Jason Dunn tell you about the riots at the U.S. Capitol building last week? Like, do we know of anyone from Colorado who has been arrested in connection with that attack?
3: We do. He told me he's splitting his time almost equally between investigating what happened at the Capitol last week and whether Coloradans were involved and planning for the future. And we know that so far, two Coloradans have been arrested in connection to the protests. Um, And a third man who traveled from Colorado was arrested for making specific threats to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, but Dunn said he hasn't lived in the state for several years. He does expect additional arrests in Colorado in coming days as federal officials are fleshing out all these investigations. OK,
0: that's important. More arrests likely coming.
3: Yes. And and, you know, I should note that he's working on the investigation and he there may be some initial court appearances here. Uh, but the federal prosecutors in D.C. will likely be handling most of these cases.
1: You know, I will say that there is an unprecedented effort going on in Washington, as I'm sure. Um, you and your listeners are aware of uh, between the FBI and the Department of Justice and the, and the Washington, D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. And the level of communication uh, between that operation and the field offices for the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Offices is um, really something I've never seen.
0: Never seen. I mean, I suppose there's only so much law enforcement can do. What kind of help does U.S. Attorney Jason Dunn want from the general public? You know, eyes and ears, in, eyes and ears. out there. Um,
3: Exactly. Eyes and ears... Um, you know, we a lot of these social media accounts have been shut down in recent days. So I think it's very important that if you hear of something just from your friend or your neighbor, um, they want to know if any, if, they, if anyone has any information about anything that might take, anyone who might take part in a criminal activity around protests in Colorado in the coming weeks. He also wants to hear if you have any information about people who took part in the riots at the Capitol building last week. Mm-hmm. Um, people can contact the FBI office or the U.S. Attorney's Office in Colorado, the website is is fairly easy. FBI.gov backslash tips. Again, that's fbi.gov backslash tips. And we'll post that and the and the phone number on our website as well, cpr.org.
0: Thank you so much, Allison Sherry.
3: Anytime Ryan. She's
0: our justice reporter and she just spoke with US attorney Jason Dunn about planned armed protests as inauguration day nears.
4: What we're trying to do
5: is use every tool in our power to get this very dangerous man removed. Don't forget, he's got his finger on the nuclear codes. I mean, he
3: he could do a lot of damage between now and next week.
0: So that is Congresswoman Diana DeGette on our show Tuesday, talking about Congress's effort to remove President Trump for security's sake at home and abroad. With that in mind, we're going to focus on an international relationship that's become increasingly volatile between the U.S. and Iran, from economic sanctions to the assassination of Commander Qassem Soleimani. From DU's Center for Middle East Studies, Nader Hashemi joins us. Professor, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ryan. How would you describe U.S.-Iranian relations right now?
6: Well, I think they're very volatile. Um... All the indications seem to suggest that there is a very high likelihood of a potential war between the United States and Iran in the last remaining days of the Trump presidency. Um, so things are not in a good state.
0: The word "war" is a scary word. That's not hyperbole.
6: No, it's not. You know, if you look at the you know just the evidence um, um, over the summer, there was a series of you know mysterious explosions in Iran at its uh, key strategic um, economic and nuclear sites. Um, in November, the New York Times reported that Trump had a consultation with his key advisors about possible military options against Iran and he had to be talked back by his key foreign policy advisors. Uh, a few weeks later, the United States, along with Israel, assassinated Iran's top nuclear scientist. Um, uh, we had B-52 bombers flying in the vicinity that have been dispatched. The um, US aircraft carrier has been sent there American troops have been increased, uh, have been sent to the region. So, you know, um, this is uh, all the signs that, you know, we could be headed to a war. Uh, You know, the Trump administration has been particularly obsessed with Iran. And then just yesterday, Secretary of State Pompeo gave a major speech where he announced uh, to the shock of most uh, experts in the region that uh, Iran now allegedly is the home of Al Qaeda. It's the new Afghanistan, to quote the Secretary of State. So, um, you know, these are signs of, um, you know, an impending conflict.
0: Well, let's unpack a few things. First off, do you buy what Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is saying there that Iran is now a seat for Al Qaeda?
6: No, I think it's a gross exaggeration. I mean, even his own words contradict his statement yesterday uh, in justifying um, a dialogue. Uh, with the Taliban a few months ago uh, that could lead to the withdrawal of American troops. Mike Pompeo himself said that al-Qaeda was a uh, a spent force. It was was in its uh, dying days. And now he's telling us that it's been rejuvenated under the leadership of the Islamic Republic of Iran. I think these are sort of really desperate moves by an administration that has lost all credibility internally but also internationally and that has a particular deep ideological sort of reading of the Middle East that is um, uh, uh, heavily biased towards um, authoritarian regimes, um, toward the state of Israel and um, um, one has to understand I think these statements through that prism. Uh, If you look at most of the intelligent intelligence um, experts who have responded to yesterday's statement about Iran allegedly being the home of Al Qaeda, they have dismissed it as um, sort of really reflecting the personal views of the Secretary of State, not based on solid intelligence.
0: You use the term obsessed, that uh, Trump, the the Trump administration is obsessed with Iran. What do you mean by that? And is that hyperbole? Well, I mean, if you can just sort of look at, um,
6: you know, the statements. I mean, just we're talking about what Mike Pompeo said yesterday about Al Qaeda being the, you know, um, being allied with the Islamic Republic of Iran. That's so off in left field that no one with any familiarity can take that seriously. Um, You look at the efforts that this administration um, um, has undertaken to. you know, explain uh, uh, and to justify this new hardline policy toward Iran, effectively making an argument that somehow, you know, Iran is the source of global instability. I mean, even in the context of the Middle East, Iran is a deeply repressive regime that has contributed to a lot of instability, but it's not the only actor that has. So if you look at the actual facts on the ground with respect to Um, the behavior of the Iranian regime, and then you measure it against the statements and the um, uh, policies that have been pursued by this administration, there's a deep disconnect. Um, And it has to do with, I think, a particular set of ideological positions that this administration has with respect to its understanding of Middle East politics, but also It comes down to the figure of Donald Trump, who I think was always obsessed with uh, President Obama and was deeply angered that Obama's one major Middle East foreign policy achievement was the Iran nuclear deal, and he was determined to tear that deal up. And in the process of doing so, I would argue he has actually strengthened Iran. He's made the uh, United States, I think, less safe. And the simple measure of that is, you know, Iran now has restarted its uh, enrichment program. When uh, Trump came into office, there was an existing nuclear deal that had Iran's nuclear program under lock and key. Uh, That has all been torn apart. And so, uh, you know, this administration has, um, I think, Um, has a particular obsession with Iran. That's the best way of explaining it.
0: I'll say indeed that President Trump has been skeptical of the nuclear deal from the beginning, saying that it didn't work, that it was one-sided. You know, but Iran is a regime that has called for the obliteration of Israel, wiping Israel off the face of the earth. Isn't that something that you'd want an American president to be obsessed with?
6: Well, certainly you would, um, but if, even if you listen to Israeli, Israeli intelligence officials, military um, um, officials, they realize that that is largely rhetoric, that Iran is not about to obliterate Israel. Um, um, so I think one has to you know, read these statements in the context of the actual balance of power in the Middle East and Iran's capabilities. So um, um, you know, President Obama faced the exact same dilemma and he pursued, I think, a much wiser strategy that had the support of virtually the entire international community, that as destabilizing as Iran's policies are with respect to Israel, with respect to other countries in the Middle East, particularly with respect to Syria, where the Islamic Republic of Iran's hands are drenched in blood for what it did uh, in Syria over the last 10 years, the better strategy is to remove the most powerful weapons that Iran might have access to in the case of a, a nuclear potential, and then to try and Um, you know, work with the international community to restrain Iran's uh, hegemonic ambitions in the Middle East. I think that's a much more wider and prudent strategy. If you look at what Donald Trump has done, I think the evidence is pretty clear. Uh, The policy has failed. Iran has been strengthened both internally and regionally. And so um, none of it really makes sense from a rational perspective.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and Professor Nader Hashemi joins us once again. He is the head of DU's Center for Middle East Studies and a professor at the Joseph Corbell School for International Studies at DU. Uh, we know that President-elect Joe Biden wants to re-enter the Iran nuclear deal once he's inaugurated. Uh, does this offer you any hope? It does. I think, you know, if you look at what Joe Biden has said
6: about Iran, about the Middle East. The statements and the positions have been encouraging. Um, he basically wants to get back to the deal that was signed under uh, President Obama, and I think that um, that provides some hope. Number one, it provides uh, a step back away from what looks like a possible, you know, war scenario. But also, I think it'll help um, stabilize the broader politics of the Middle East. But particularly, and this has not been, I think. Um, appreciated enough one of the good things that come that comes out of a u.s Iran nuclear agreement is that it creates better internal social conditions for Iranians to organize and mobilize to advance their democratic Aims and agenda. Mm. Um, um, you, you know, when the deal was announced in 2015, Iranian democratic forces, human rights forces, celebrated the deal because it meant a lifting of the sanctions. It meant that people wouldn't be starving anymore, and they would have a serious chance not only of you know reconstituting uh, some sort of meaningful um, you know uh, set of social conditions that allow will allow them to survive and allow them to sort of advance their you know uh, political demands, but also. Uh, there was the prospect of Iran reintegrating itself into the international community Iran's ruling elites were deeply divided over this they were fighting with each other that's actually a, a, a an indicator of you know um uh, good social conditions for democracy when ruling authoritarian elites are deeply at each other's throats and are fighting over you know future policy so i mean that was one of the big the big benefits actually it was a big reason why i supported the nuclear deal because i think it increased the prospects for democratization in Iran and that's not my personal opinion. That's virtually the overwhelming consensus of Iran's pro-democracy movement.
0: And presumably of the international community. uh, So many nations signing on to that deal. So uh, a question about daily life in Iran for Iranian citizens. Uh, How has the withdrawal from the nuclear deal and the increased sanctions, how has that affected someone who lives in Tehran or elsewhere?
6: Well, thanks for asking, um, Ryan. Because we often forget that you know there are Iranian citizens who are, in many ways, the the biggest victims of the tensions between the U.S. and Iran. Um, so when Donald Trump pulled out of the agreement and reimposed sanctions. Um, the biggest uh, price was paid um, by the average citizen uh, in Iran, who has no say over its gov- their government's policy. But you know, uh, the economy effectively has collapsed. The the value of the currency has you know lost eighty percent of its value. Um, Iran has been banned from you know economic transactions on the financial um, market, so people were unable to import simple things like you know medication to deal with um, uh, basic um, you know health issues. Uh, on top of that. Um, Iran now is the epicenter in the Middle East of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, the uh, the official figures are about fifty six thousand deaths, but most people consider that to be a gross underestimate. So, um, um, you know, the, the tragedy of this um, moment um, is that you know the Iranian people find themselves really between a rock and a hard place. Um, from a repressive regime internally that has become increasingly repressive repressive and that has deeply mismanaged the coronavirus pandemic um, that has exacerbated suffering for Iranian citizens. But at the same time, they're also facing pressure from the outside, largely from Donald Trump, uh, who's imposed these draconian sanctions. On Iran that has made life miserable, you know. But a year ago, there were mass protests uh, throughout Iran um, that were brutally repressed by the regime, and these were, you know, economic protests. They were triggered by fu- fuel increases, but they were largely a result of the deep frustration and despair that millions of Iranians, mostly young people, were facing um, over their, you know, economic and political plight. The lack so the of the is, lack of prospects.
0: Yeah. Are not are in just the last few moments that we have. Uh, we see that the Biden administration wants to re-enter the nuclear deal. Uh, this, this seesaw of policy, is there some way to build in, henceforth, a commitment to the nuclear deal that can't be then undone again, uh, maybe in the last 30 seconds here?
6: Uh, it's very difficult to do that because you know the Iranians will make the argument that look, let's say we sign back onto the agreement. What happens in four years if Donald Trump gets reelected and then we're you know back to where we were? So I think you know that highlights the fact that you know in terms of foreign policy, if the United States wants to play a positive role on the international stage, it has to get to its internal democratic house in order. These two things are deeply interlinked and they can't be separated.
0: Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. Nader Hashimi, professor with the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. A morning ritual has kept Barbara Olson of Boulder grounded during the pandemic, a way, she says, of renewing her spirits. I go to the
7: Foothills Community Park. There I can just hike up across the hill. You know, rocks and grasses and just clamber up towards a tree or I could walk on a trail if I want. But I've been doing this just before sunrise so then I'm standing on the side of the mountain as the earth just turns and I see the beginning of the sun, just the rays of sun starting on the eastern
0: horizon and then I just stand and I watch the sunrise. Barbara Olson sharing her morning ritual, which starts at Foothills Community Park in Boulder. Tell us about the place you've escaped to during the pandemic, whether it's a park, a trail. Another room of the house. You can send us a voice memo, maybe even record it on site. Our email is Colorado Matters at CPR.org. That's Colorado Matters at CPR.org. Or leave a voicemail at 303-871-9191 extension 480. Again, CPR's main number, 303-871-9191 extension 480. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News.
5: Hi, I'm Anne-Marie Awad, host of the CPR News podcast On Something. This past fall, we hosted our first ever live storytelling event about the way drugs and family can overlap. When you are raised by a drug
7: addict, the drug erases them.
5: You can hear stories from that night right now in a special bonus episode of On Something, available wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you're subscribed for Season 3 of On Something, coming this spring.
0: You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. There aren't enough educators in Colorado to care for and teach the youngest children. As the state struggles to address that, one big goal is to increase the diversity of these early childhood educators. In the next installment of her special series, The Workforce Behind the Workforce, CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine examines a promising new pipeline of educators. The call
5: to prayer goes off on Saba al-Mubarak's phone. It wafts through her kitchen to the back of her Denver apartment where she's checking up on her two daughters. Al and her husband have seven children in all, one with special needs. But Always on the Kitchen Table is a big book she studies in her spare time to become an early childhood educator. She says in Arabic that she loves children a lot and also wants to help her husband because one income isn't enough family moved to the U.S. to escape Syria's civil war in 2017. But her English wasn't good enough. On an Arabic Facebook group, she heard about a special pilot program to get an early childhood teaching credential.
7: She says that's
5: when she got motivated, because classes are in Arabic. That's the premise behind the Pomoja Early Childhood Education Workforce Program. About 55 refugee and immigrant women who take part in it are divided into four cohorts based on their language. Arabic, Swahili, Afghani, and Karen, spoken in Burma and Thailand. The organizers say helping the women enter the field of early childhood education aligns with many of their cultural, religious, and family values.
7: We found like, wow, it feels like there's a resounding love of being a mother and wanting to understand how to be a mother better. So why would we not bring them the field of early childhood education?
5: Lauren Dorn is with Lutheran Family Services Rocky Mountains, one of the program's partners. It offers an 18 week course that allows the women to get a national credential to teach early childhood education called the CDA. The pandemic forced the courses onto Zoom.
1: Actually, I prepared my homework.
5: Today's class flows back and forth between English and Arabic. The focus this evening is on physical and cognitive development. Things like developing maturation and perceptual and spatial awareness in children. The trainer asks, what allows the brain to develop connections? The women fire out answers. They have lots of questions throughout the class. Saba Al Mubarak says she's learning so many things she wasn't aware of. Where you get this. The program has given Khan Mwesi, another participant, a sense of pride. I
4: got it from the
5: hospital. This weekend, she's relaxing in her Aurora apartment with her six-year-old daughter, Martinode. But life has been hard. Most of her family was killed in the Congo, and she spent her first few years in the U.S. tending to Martinode, who was born prematurely. Mwesi cleaned buildings for several years until a car accident. Then she heard about the child care training program.
7: It was very difficult to go through the application. But when I finished, boom. They called me.
5: Moise began classes and was amazed.
7: I was feeling I can be successful. I can get very far.
5: She's landed a part-time job working with infants at a child care center. That's the age group where Colorado's shortage is most critical. Alongside early childhood classes, the women have an intensive English class and other supports.
1: Oh my gosh. Uh, how to Techn- use a computer? Uh, Google. Google Docs. Um, Zoom meetings. Zoom, how to download the apps and use the apps.
5: Deborah the Young, a program organizer, says the training isn't without challenges. It requires more English proficiency than Young realized. Many women are nervous about the national CDA exam, which can only be taken in English or Spanish.
1: The system is too rigid in requiring such high proficient. English levels.
5: Young is advocating to allow the women to take their exam in their preferred language. Classes also teach the women how to navigate cultural nuances in the workplace. Young says in the U.S., for example, taking initiative is praised, but in conflict zones...
1: You are being visible. You are in harm's way when you are visible.
5: Conwayze struggled initially to understand workplace dynamics and the nuance of meaning in the English language, but she loves her job. And knows her confidence will grow as her English skills improve.
2: She loves this job.
5: That's her husband, Martin.
2: It's like uh, she's fulfilling her dream.
5: (laughs) I'm Jenny Brundine, CPR News.
0: The deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol last week was a display of white supremacy. Confederate flags were flying, and it was an attempt to undermine an election whose outcome depended very much on voters of color. It was excruciating to watch for Stephanie Rose Spalding of Colorado Springs. The pastor, professor, and former Senate candidate posted a video that day with a plea to white people. Get
4: off of your behinds and do the work that is necessary today. I don't need a hug. I need you to fix your freaking families. I need you to fix yourself. I need you to fix this. Do that. Do that so that white supremacy dies once and for all.
0: We have invited Spalding to elaborate on that today, and we should mention that she's also an associate vice chancellor for equity, diversity, and inclusion at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and author of Recovering from Racism, a guidebook to beginning conversations. And, Professor, thanks for being with us.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me this morning.
0: Also with us, a guest who describes herself as a white woman working for racial and social justice. Christine Saxman does anti-racism training for groups of mostly white folks. She's based in Chicago. Christine, thanks for your time. Thank you. Stephanie, I want to make clear that the views you express here are your own, not those of the institutions you're associated with. Let's start with January 6th. Describe where you were, And what was going through your mind as a group of mostly white rioters stormed the Capitol?
2: Well, since we are in the middle of a global pandemic, I was at home working online and had just finished a meeting earlier that day. It was about 12 o'clock, so lunch break for me where I turned on the television, of course, um, news station, because that's really all I watch. And the beginnings of the insurgency were happening. They had not yet stormed the Capitol, but I could see they were on the steps and moving closer and closer. And um, and my dad had called me and he was jokingly referencing Mitch McConnell's um, Speech earlier that day. And I was not in a mood to joke with him because for me, Mitch McConnell was too late, too little. And as I continued throughout the hour to watch, my heart just began to sink and my stomach started churning, watching what happened. And it was the moment that I saw insurgents um, in Statuary Hall with flagpoles and backpacks and all other things, and it just really hit me hard because a few days earlier that Sunday, I was there at the Capitol watching a good friend of mine um, be sworn in into her first term as a US Congresswoman. And I know the security of the Capitol and to see that it was just beyond upsetting.
0: Your friend in Congress, Representative Cory Bush of Missouri, I'll ask you a bit more about that in a moment. But elsewhere in the video that you posted to social media that day, you said, Black justice workers are not okay. That you were triggered watching, quote, how little our lives matter played out in full color for the globe. Stephanie, expound on that. How did January 6th? Demonstrate to you how little your life matters in America.
2: So I, like many other Black justice workers, have done peaceful protests at the U.S. Capitol and in our states across the country. And this summer, and and even before that, have seen the ways in which law enforcement agents have been in military gear in opposition to our presence as peaceful protesters. I've had snipers of Proud Boys and the Boogaloo um, trained on me as I have given public speeches and law enforcement agents doing nothing. And to watch how There was no security or very little security of the U.S. Capitol. And knowing that I have been in that place before and the level of violence and vitriol from law enforcement agents at individuals who were protesting in the defense of Black lives, it just was like, there there was no other way to demonstrate how little Black people matter in this country.
0: And in that, you do not see pure incompetence. You see systemic racism.
2: Absolutely. Systemic racism and institutionalized oppression, coordinated um, efforts to to allow for white privilege to be privileged in these kinds of moments. Um, There's so much that is not conspiracy theory, but reality unfolding in front of us.
0: We also know it's been documented that there are far-right extremists that are trying to make inroads in law enforcement, in the military. This was something, in fact, that the federal government was so concerned about, it was working on, although that got deprioritized under the Trump administration. All right, uh, Christine Saxman, what about you? You watched things as they unfolded. You saw Stephanie's video that day, January 6th. What was your reaction?
7: Well, I think watching Stephanie's video, um, for me as a white person, it was just the reminder of how hard it is for my community, my white community to stay present in that kind of emotion. Um, And I I think that that is an important piece of moving into the action that Stephanie asked of us.
0: Mm.
7: It's to not just be kind of numb or to be kind of shocked um, or to just be reactive in a moment, but to really think about how does this actually transform something? And to see myself as a white person that I'm I, I I am connected to those white people who were who were storming the Capitol. And I mean that literally, and that I I I have people in my family who support um, who support some of these these and what I would call white extremists, not just far right, but far right white extremists. And so how do I then as a white person hear Stephanie's call to action? <laughs> And actually make it action and not just some kind of performative piece or I post something on Facebook, but how do I actually work to transform the relationships that I have control over?
0: Well, this is the $10,000 question, isn't it? How do people in their daily lives make changes in their spheres that can lead to exactly what you're talking about? Um, Where would you start? I'm I'm curious how this work started for you, for that matter.
7: Um, well, it started for me when I was a classroom teacher. Um, So as a white woman who had, uh, and if I'm really honest, I had these very unrealistic visions of myself as kind of the white savior. And I was going to come in and I was going to help students of color in this predominantly white district. And I failed miserably. And that was the moment for me to decide, like, I could either ignore that failure and just kind of go on with business as usual, or I can try to learn and transform myself. And so to your question about action... I think white folks have to, and I say this because I'm doing it myself, I'm not asking white folks to do anything that I wouldn't do myself, but I have to, number one, notice what race had to do with what happened uh, in the insurrection, and I have to start building the capacity to have the conversations in my personal life, in my professional life, and for race to never be off the table.
0: How might I start that conversation? With someone in my family who says, I'm not racist.
7: Tell me more about how you're not racist.
0: How do people tend to answer that when you ask that?
7: Well, I mean, that begins the conversation. Because some folks will talk to actions. And I think particularly white uh, liberals and progressives will kind of name things that they do. And we fall into some traps that are, frankly, and Stephanie, um, you can speak to this way more than I can, that are frustrating to folks of color of like, oh, well, my volunteer work in this community, or my friend of color, um, and, and we don't get into a deep dive. And I think this is where the responsibility piece that I want to name is that this, we can, I cannot as a white person be disconnected from, uh, the white extremism that happened, um, this past week.
0: So what does it mean to acknowledge that connection?
7: Stephanie, did I hear you? I don't, I don't want to
0: speak if you were going to speak. Yeah, and Steph- no, was Stephanie Respalding, by all I, means, reflect on what you're hearing here.
2: No, absolutely. When, you know, when we are asking white people to go deeper into how they are not racist and, and to articulate what they mean, a lot of times when we have this conversation, um, it ends up with the personal, well, this is what I don't do. But then you begin to ask them, well, tell me, who your doctor looks like, or what is the background of your um, real estate agent and your neighbors. And then they begin to see that all of the people that they are in genuine relationship on a day-to-day basis are white people. Hmm. And that is not about what you are acting on or doing deliberately. But that is enshrining a world of whiteness that allows for the institutionalization of white power.
0: The idea of looking around my immediate circle and saying, "Is it is it Lily White?" That's an exercise. Christine, does that resonate?
7: Absolutely. And I, I, when I, in my work with white folks all the time, I think this becomes a, a, a one of those questions at the start of a racially conscious journey as a white person is, so what then do I do if I lack authentic, mutually reciprocal relationships with folks of color in my life?
0: I want to circle back to more kind of practical tips for daily life. But I I do want to note uh, Stephanie Rose Balding, uh, that you have a friend in Congress, as we mentioned, as you mentioned, Representative Cory Bush of Missouri. She wrote an opinion piece for The Washington Post titled, This is the America Black People Know. And she writes that until people recognize that this is who we are as a nation, the attack on the Capitol is a symbol of who we are, that we will not get beyond it. Uh, Stephanie, what are your thoughts when leaders, uh, perhaps who are well-intentioned, say things like, this isn't who we are, this is an aberration?
2: I wholeheartedly agree with Representative Bush. And for others to deny that this is who we are, it allows for the perpetuation of systemic racism. It doesn't allow us to get to the truth And truth is the basis of any kind of of journey towards healing. And trust me, we are not at the place to heal yet. We are just in a lot of ways discovering the cancer that is so deep and we have broken the skin, but we have not done the surgery to get to the place of healing. So when we deny that this is who we are, when we overlook the 500 years of the ways in which white supremacist ideology has been inculcated into the culture, into the law, into the practice of being an American. When we deny that, we, we stifle the work of people of color.
0: Christine Saxman, I I just want to reflect on some of my own experience speaking to my family about race, about systemic racism. Uh, We are Jewish. And when I bring up racism and systemic racism, the answer I often hear is, well, we faced all of our own hardships. It's time to move past those onto something else. Do you hear that from white folks and how do you answer them?
7: Yeah, I do hear that from white folks, um, and I think about what does it mean to look at the systemic racism that Stephanie's asking us to actually peer into and to name. That if you look at education, if you look at healthcare, if you look at finance, if you look at housing, if you look at all of these different systems, there is a racial predictability that is undeniable. And when we do that piece of the to what echo what Stephanie said of. This is who we are. And there's really racist policies, laws, and procedures that have led to those systemic outcomes. So even though race is, a, is not real in terms of biology, it is real in terms of how we've made it real. Hmm. And so I ask white folks to wrestle with that with me.
0: And, and this is where you might study the history of redlining. You might study how racist the GI Bill was in the distribution of wealth After the war, Uh, Professor, let's hear just a bit more from the video that you posted on January 6th addressing white people.
4: This is your fault. This is on your watch for sitting by silently for allowing whiteness to manifest in some BS like this for not listening to black people, for not heeding what we have been telling you for years and years. We have been showing you how democracy is failing because of racism and how embedded it is in every structure and institution. You need to own it and deal with it and deal with it quickly because we will not have a country if you do not. Get it together, white America. Because this is what happens when chickens seriously come home to roost.
0: You used that phrase embedded. Earlier, you talked about this being a cancer. Uh, Christine Saxman, do you think that this moment brings the country any closer to addressing the cancer? I mean, I think that there are many folks who'd hoped... That there was progress after the killings of George Floyd, of Breonna Taylor, of Elijah McClain.
7: Only if white people take action. And so, if white folks um, want to reject um, what they heard in, in what Stephanie shared, if they if they want to distance it, if they intellectualize it, if they if I am not able as a white person to get in touch with the emotional response and realize that I have so much work to do with other white people. If that continues, then yes, but if not, then no.
0: Professor, you used the term truth earlier, getting to the truth of systemic racism. And I wanna draw on that word because in addition to your academic work, your political involvement, your writing, your pastoral work at (laughs) Ebenezer Baptist Church of Colorado Springs, you founded a group called Truth and Conciliation, which calls for a federal Truth and Conciliation Commission for the United States. Uh, Does that feel closer at hand now?
2: I think we are on the brink of being able to do so but I would be, I would ask us to be cautious. And even in the language and the, the articulation of this work is the purposeful use of the word conciliation. There have been resolutions and even initiatives brought to Congress that look at reconciliation, and a lot of um, my white colleagues, allies, and friends, want to move to reconciliation. But reconciliation presupposes that there was an amicable agreement at the start. And there has never been in the history of what we now know as the United States, through the age of colonization, there was never a place of agreement, of racial harmony. So we cannot go back to that. And that is the first truth we must deal with that from the founding of the, the quote-unquote discovery, the doctrine of discovery issued by the Pope in the late 1400s, there has never been an agreement to the humanity of those that we have racialized ever since.
0: And so it's really important to you that the truth aspect that comes before conciliation uh, be not uh, lightly dealt with, uh, Christine Saxman. Do you want to say just a few words in the limited time we have remaining about a kind of national reckoning and an official reckoning, if you will, on the record? You know.
7: Yeah, I think that it it speaks to what 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 you said, um, Professor. And I'm sorry that I I, I called you Stephanie earlier um, about. The fact that white folks will often tell ourselves stories that there's a place of racial harmony we can go back to, and there's not.
0: Hmm.
7: And so, what does actually reckoning with our racist history and reckoning with the racism and white extremism that happened this week that's not going to go away unless we really take action?
0: Thank you both for your time. I'm really grateful. Thank you. We heard from Stephanie Rose Spalding, senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Colorado Springs, associate professor of women's and ethnic studies at UCCS, an associate vice chancellor there, and a former U.S. Senate candidate. She's also the author of Recovering from Racism, a guidebook to beginning conversations. And Christine Saxman joined us, a Chicago-based anti-racism trainer. That is Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to the team that makes this show a reality. Carl Bielich.
2: Allie Budner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher.
0: Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla
5: Jimenez. Avery Lill.
0: Pedro Lumbrano.
5: Alexandra McMahon.
0: Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Paolo Shalsada. And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is CPR News.